0: Today on the Matt Wall Show, leftists are fighting passionately to defend the profit margins of the pharmaceutical industry, even as Big Pharma uses an entire generation of children as lab rats. Also, federal officials hunt for the murder of a dolphin while letting the murder of five infant children off the hook. Plus, an MSNBC analyst explains why it's a threat to free speech to allow people to say whatever they want on social media. And a Democrat candidate for Congress aborted her child to save the planet. Finally, in our daily cancellation, Ilhan Omar is upset because Christians were singing on a plane. How dare they? We'll talk about all that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. You know, a good sofa uh, not only is really comfortable and great, but also it can change the way your room looks and feels. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you've probably heard me talk about Helix mattresses. Helix has left the bedroom now and they started making sofas. They just launched a new company called Allform, and they're already making the best sofas we've ever seen. So what makes an All Form sofa really cool? For starters, it's the easiest way that you can customize a sofa using premium materials and at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores, you can pick your fabric, the sofa color, color of the legs, sofa size, and shape to make sure it's perfect for you and your home. They've got armchairs and love seats all the way up to an eight-seat sectional, so there's something for everyone. And you can always start small and buy more seats later on if you feel uh, that you want your Allform sofa to grow and change with you when you move. Allform sofas are also delivered directly to your door. In the past, if you wanted to order a sofa, you would have to hire somebody to come and assemble it in your home or break your back trying to put it together yourself. Allform has simple, quick assembly that uh, where there's no tools even needed. It's as simple as that. And if getting a sofa without trying it in store sounds a little bit risky, don't need to worry. You get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it, and Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash Walsh. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash Walsh. Over the past couple of years, we have watched as some of the great myths of modern American leftism have been exposed. There's been a great unmasking, which ironically began around the time when everyone started wearing masks. One of those myths, which we discussed last week, is that leftists hate the police, that they're anti-cop. It turns out that the disdain for law enforcement is really quite situationally based because it all depends on circumstance. They will, of course, call for a cop's head on a platter and start chanting all cops are bastards and all the rest of it. If a police officer shoots a black suspect, even if that suspect is a violent criminal who's shot while in the process of trying to kill or injure someone, anyone viewing the reaction to such incidents uh, in a vacuum may erroneously conclude that the protesters just hate police in general. But as we've seen, that hatred does not extend to the police officer who shot an unarmed woman in the Capitol building nor does it extend to the COVID Gestapo harassing soccer moms for bringing their kids to the playground during lockdowns, etc. They're only only anti-certain cops in certain very specific situations. Outside of that, they're generally willing to give police an extraordinary amount of leeway. In a similar way, we have seen that the American left are not, as they've been previously accused, um, a bunch of anti-corporation, rich-hating socialists, Now, it's more accurate to say that they're anti-certain corporations and certain rich people, but on both counts, the list is diminishing rapidly, as there are fewer and fewer corporations and rich people remaining who who have not bent the knee to left-wing orthodoxy. The ones who have demonstrated their fealty to the leftist cause can expect to be vociferously defended by the very people who had in the past been labeled anti-corporation. Just look at how the left has come valiantly to the defense of Disney, pretending that One of the largest corporations in the world is a victim of right-wing cancel culture. In fact, even when they go after the few remaining rich people who have not bowed to them, and there's only a few, they're usually attacking that rich person on behalf of and in defense of other rich people. So look at how they've taken the side of the Twitter corporate board against Elon Musk. The Twitter corporate board, who, by the way, together own almost no shares of Twitter, I think once Jack Dorsey leaves the board, uh, he's got 2%. He's the you know, founder of Twitter. And he's going to be gone in a few months. And when he's gone, like combined, I think they have 1% or 2%, all of them. So they have almost no financial stake in the company and yet have claimed the right to make decisions against the economic interests of its actual shareholders and without allowing the shareholders to have a say. The American leftist, with his democratic principles, sees no problem with this arrangement because he hates Elon Musk. Not because Elon Musk is rich but because Elon Musk is rich and not leftist. And then there is the left's relationship with the pharmaceutical industry. Now, if there are any corporations in the entire world who warrant extreme skepticism and constant criticism, it's big pharma. I mean, we live in a country plagued by an opioid epidemic, uh, addiction epidemic, and, and that epidemic has been largely driven not by drugs pushed by dealers on the street, but by drugs made by the pharmaceutical industry and prescribed by doctors who themselves are riddled by financial conflicts of interest. And yet the leftist goes to war to protect this industry's bottom line. Bottom line, Perhaps most notably, fighting on behalf of Moderna and Pfizer by pushing for the government to require Americans to use their products. And that's a push that isn't over, by the way. Just this past weekend, Dr. Ashish Jha, who's Biden's COVID advisor, appeared on Meet the Press and suggested that the White House may yet still impose a vaccine mandate for travel. Listen.
1: You were an advocate of a vaccine mandate uh, when you were on the other side of, uh, of this uh, uh, in your private capacity here. Is that something that
0: can be implemented, a vaccine mandate for air travel? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, I think, you know, when I was uh, I have always believed and certainly the early days of the pandemic, uh, once vaccines became available, I thought it was very important to get as many Americans vaccinated as quickly as possible. And mandates worked. Uh, mandates do work. Um, we are in a different position now, obviously, with more than 220 million Americans vaccinated, 100 million people boosted. Uh, and so we really have to ask ourselves, what is the role of mandates moving forward? And we're going to need to assess each of these uh, individual situations differently. Now, there was never any good reason to have a vaccine mandate for travel or for anything else. There especially is no reason for it now, two years later, when almost everybody has moved on from the COVID thing. We're not doing COVID anymore. I don't know if, uh, if the good Dr. Jha realizes that. But then again, that's easy for me to say. I'm not a pharmaceutical executive. There's still plenty of reasons for them to want mandates, billions of reasons, in fact. The mandates are great for big pharma's profit margins. And speaking of big, big pharma's profit margins, nothing over the past couple of decades has done more to help them in that regard than the invention of gender-affirming care for children. The pharmaceutical industry is carrying out medical experiments on kids, making billions upon billions of dollars doing it, while the left circles its wagons around these mad scientists and insists that that, that we must not even ask questions about it, much less criticize. Just hand your kid over and let the medical industry do whatever it's going to do. Don't question it. That's transphobic. There are today 300 so-called gender-affirming clinics offering so-called therapy and so-called medical treatment To kids in the United States, not long ago, there was only one or two. Not long before that, there were none. Now there are 300. But the medical industry saw the market, saw the profit opportunity, took advantage. Now millions of kids are being dosed or being put on the path to being dosed, while Big Pharma rakes in billions and sends its lackeys out to shield them from criticism. One such lackey is a guy named Dr. Jack Turbin. He's a child psychiatry fellow at Stanford Medicine, and also, by the way, a soulless, monstrous hellspawn who has made it his life's work to feed as many kids as he can into the big pharma wood chipper. Um, A few days ago, he tweeted a, a common lie that we frequently hear from the big pharma whores on the left. This is what he tweeted. He said, puberty blockers, temporary, reversible, are more benign than going through a puberty that can't be undone. If you can't see that, then you really need to reflect on your biases and whether you consider trans people at all when you form your opinions. Yes, the, um, think about that for a second. A drug, chemicals being put into a child's body, um, those, the, that, that drug is more benign than the natural processes of your child's body. A drug is more benign than just natural growth. And this is the lie that has consigned many children, and will consign many more, to a nightmarish fate. The lie that the chemical castration drugs are temporary and reversible. It's not true. it, it, It is a lie. And the people saying it know that it's a lie. Jack Turbin knows that it's a lie. And he knows it's a lie. We know it's a lie to start with because... We only just started recently giving these drugs to physically healthy children. There aren't any reliable long-term studies because there couldn't be. This current crop of children are the lab rats, the guinea pigs, the canaries in the pharmaceutical coal mine, whatever uh, imagery you want to use. Gender affirmation care is quote-unquote gender affirmation care, so-called, is experimental. The medical industry is experimenting on kids and making billions doing it. But we do know a few things about puberty blockers. We know that these are drugs interfering with the normal, healthy processes in the body. We know that they intentionally stunt growth. That's what they're designed to do. Or sorry, not designed to do. Let me clarify that. They were not designed for this purpose at all. They weren't designed to be used by kids in the first place. They're being used off-label, but we do know that they stunt growth. That's That we know for a fact. And in fact, you can even go to mainstream sources like the Mayo Clinic, hardly a right-wing publication, and you'll be told plain as day that the long-term effects of puberty blockers, and there are long-term effects, potentially include stunting of growth uh, They can affect a child's bone density permanently, They can make children sterile permanently. That's why the NHS website used to assure, that, assure us that plot, puberty blockers are temporary and reversible. It used to say that. Now it doesn't. Now, this is what it says on the NHS website. It says, little is known about the long-term side effects of hormone or puberty blockers in children with gender dysphoria. It's also not known whether hormone blockers affect the development of the teenage brain or children's bones. Side effects may also include hot flashes, fatigue, and mood alterations. From the age of 16, teenagers who've been on hormone blockers for at least 12 months may be given cross-sex hormones, also known as gender-affirming hormones. These hormones cause some irreversible changes, such as, Breast development caused by taking estrogen, breaking, uh, breaking or deepening of the voice, long-term cross-sex hormone treatment may cause temporary or even permanent infertility. Temporary and reversible, we're told, right? If by temporary and reversible, you mean that your child, after taking these drugs, will forever be a physically underdeveloped, sterile adult with brittle bones who will never have children. And that's just the start of the long-term effects. Long-term effects that, by the way, he cannot possibly choose to fall victim to. This is a child who, who can't possibly know what any of that means. He, he can't. You, you could say to a child, "Well, you know, if you take this, uh, hey, listen, little twelve-year-old, uh, if you take this um, in the future, you might not, you know, you might not be able to have kids." Doesn't mean anything to a twelve-year-old no 12-year-old especially no 12-year-old boy wants to have kids it's not anywhere on their radar so they're choosing to forgo they're making permanent decisions for their for their lives decisions that will profoundly impact the rest of their lives and they cannot possibly know what they're getting themselves into or what they're giving up which includes by the way puberty itself okay when you say to a child, oh, do you want to block your puberty? What? Hey, do, do you want to go through puberty or not? What does that mean to them? They don't even know what it is. They haven't gone through it. Now, when you lie to them and you tell them, listen, some there are going to be some changes in your body that are happening pretty soon. It's going to be uncomfortable. Uh, you could just put that off if you want. It'll, it'll, it'll be no problem at all. Just take this uh, magic pill here and you're going to put off those changes and you can, have the change, you can go through the changes later in life. Well, that's, that's nonsense, but they're not going to know that. And there are many other terrible effects that we know about with the uh, with these drugs, and many that we don't, because nobody has ever done this to children before. We're the first to do it. This is historic and unprecedented in all the worst ways. But it will work out pretty well for big pharma. And apparently that's a great consolation to the left, as it turns out. Now let's get to our five headlines. If you're a parent, then you know kids are amazing and expensive and also... Sometimes, frankly, a little bit annoying. But when it comes to the expensive thing, uh, it's especially the case with Fabric. Protecting your family with term life insurance is surprisingly affordable. Fabric was built specifically for parents to help you manage your family's financial future like a parenting pro, stress-free. Fabric's new lower prices mean significant savings over other providers with great policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Everything is on your schedule with Fabric because it's all online. Less than 10 minutes to apply and you could be offered coverage instantly with no health exam required. Then just personalize your quote to fit your family's needs. With Fabric's online hub, it's easy to track your family finances all in one place. Get affordable life insurance, set up your kids' college savings plans, and even establish a rainy day savings fund. Planning for the future has never been easier. There's no risk to apply today. Fabric has a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. Protect your family with term life insurance now in just 10 minutes. Apply today at meetfabric.com Walsh. That's meetfabric.com Walsh to start Protecting your family today, M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash Walsh. Fabric insurance agency policies issued by Vantis Life, not available in New York and Montana. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Uh, I want to mention this right at the top because I wanted to put it into the opening and uh, I, I didn't have time to include it there. So just on, on this issue of, uh, of puberty blockers, which are supposedly um, benign, reversible, temporary, according to Jack Turbin and the Jack Turbins of the world, and again, I don't want you to think that Jack Turbin, although he is unfortunately a very influential voice in this world, um, I don't want you to think that he's uh, an outlier. He's a no, this is this is this is the narrative. This is the official narrative that parents are being told, that kids are being told, this is what you hear from if you go into your gender affirming therapy, this is what you're going to hear about temporary and reversible um puberty blockers. Well, here's a uh Here's, this is something that was put on the, on the trans forum on Reddit. And um, it was posted by a parent. This is by the way, posted about four years ago. And it sat there online and nobody really noticed it. And over the weekend, um, someone on Twitter found this on Reddit and posted the screenshot. And now, if you go to Reddit to read the original post, it's been taken down. So the moderators over at the trans forum on Reddit um, have taken it down because they don't want you to see this. But this was from a parent who was soliciting help, and this is what it says. I'll read it to you. I have no clue what to do. Daughter can't get the bottom surgery and is becoming suicidal. Uh, Then it says, I've always been in support of my transgender daughter. When she was still a boy and started expressing a want to be a girl, I did everything right. Therapists and puberty blockers, everything. Well, we could just pause there and say uh, that is not doing everything right. That actually is you every step of the way doing everything wrong and hurting your child. So that's not everything right. It's it's you, you based on this quick summation, you did literally nothing right. Okay, you you faced a fork in the road and um, one after another, and you went in the wrong direction every single time. Um, and It continues. Now she's twenty and everything is falling apart. We had to hold off on the body surgery because of cost, but now finally had enough and went and got several consults. All have said the same thing. The puberty blockers have left her with a micropenis. She has to get part of her vagina made with her colon. Well, one of her friends had that surgery, and even years later, it smells fairly colon-like. So this is what they're doing with uh, to young people. Um, they're using parts of their internal organs to make fake vaginas on on young men. Obviously, my daughter is now distraught. She's in counseling, but is becoming worse and worse in her mental state, and I am frantic. On top of this, she has never had any sexual function, no urges, no erections, even when she tried masturbation to see if she could stimulate herself, nothing. The doctors say this may not uh, change even after the surgery. Her dating life is dismal as well. We knew it would be hard, but it's impossible. The one man who was with her for a while soon just became frustrated by her lack of sexual anything and broke it off. I don't know what to do. A friend suggested I post here for advice. Please help me help my child. Well, the tragic reality here is that um, there is no good answer. Now, the absolute wrong answer would be to go through with any kind of surgery whatsoever, but um, there's no great answer because because of what you have done to your child. And now he is going to live with the consequences for the rest of his life. So what happened is that he, as a child, with your facilitation, gave up on manhood, gave up on masculinity, before he'd even really experienced it. Gave up, he made a decision, he didn't make the decision, You, you made the decision, and the doctors made the decision for him about his future self. Of course, the future self has no has no say in the matter. Um, and so now he's he's never going to be a woman. That's never going to happen. But also physically, he's not a fully developed man. So he's he's uh, but he's still male biologically and always will be. But in terms of physically and how he appears, he's just kind of stuck in this in this limp, this purgatory. And this is the fate of so many kids. They're going to be languishing forever in this kind of gender purgatory where they don't really look anymore like their actual true selves, but they'll never be the this the, the fantasy version that they're trying to attain. But isn't that interesting too, also because uh, we just heard from Dr. Jack Turbin about there are no long-term side effects. Everything is reversible. Well, here we, we hear this from a parent Micro penis, no sexual function whatsoever. Oh yeah, that's the other thing. That's, those, are, that, those are the other long-term side effects that, are, that don't exist according to Jack Turbin and his ilk. Is that um, not only are you looking at being sterile as an adult, but you may have no sexual function, no libido at all, no, no sexual desires. So we have kids... Who are choosing, but not really choosing, because because they can't. A sterile, sexless adulthood, and they're gonna have to live with that forever. Temporary, and reversible. It's just a lie. Um, okay, let's uh, start with this. It says New York. For this, is from the New York Post it says a dolphin that washed up on a Florida beach was found to have been stabbed to death in a sick marine murder that investigators are now trying to solve. Beachgoers discovered the remains of the female bottlenose dolphin with a gory gash above its right eye late last month along the shoreline. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration conducted a uh, uh, necropsy uh, on the mammal and determined that it had been impaled with uh, a spear-like object. This injury was sustained while it was alive, officials said. The agency said the dolphin was likely being illegally fed in a semi-upright position before being stabbed. And now... um, Federal officials are looking into this, and uh, there could be a year in prison for the person who stabbed the dolphin and a $100,000 fine. All right, well, let me, let me just say to start with, if I have to clarify this, I am definitely 100% opposed to stabbing dolphins. I, I, do, not, I do not support that at all. So whoever stabbed this dolphin uh, and you want to give him a fine, send him to prison, okay, I'm fine with that. Um, but I just can't help, anytime I see a story like this, I can't help but note the contrast. And especially because now we're talking about federal officials, talking about a federal crime. Um, and so I see the contrast here. You've got a dead dolphin on a beach that's been stabbed in the, in the head. And they do an autopsy, even though I think it's pretty clear how the dolphin died. But they did an autopsy. And now they've got federal officials that are going to go hunt down the perpetrator of this crime and bring them to the justice, throw the book at them, whatever they can. Contrast that with what happened in D.C. a few weeks ago, where you had fully developed infant babies, uh, five of them, who were found dead in a in a in a in a container that was taken from an abortion clinic. And they also had head wounds. But in this case, their they're, uh, gash in their, their skulls have been gashed open and their brain sucked out. And in that case, um, even though there is a lot of evidence that a federal crime was committed, partial birth abortion is a federal crime, no autopsy was performed, and no federal investigation, and there will be no penalties whatsoever for the perpetrator. And also, the other thing is, in that case, we, we know who did it. It's an abortionist, Santangelo, in town. We know we, you, we know where he is. We know where he works. So they could just march over there tomorrow and arrest him on federal crimes, and they're not going to do it. So a, a dead dolphin attracts the attention of federal officials in our federal government, but not dead babies. And I say this, and please, and I brought this up, I, I pointed this out on Twitter, and at all these dummies who are responding in the comments, well, you know, we could be outraged about both. It's possible to be outraged by both, man. Yeah, I know that. But first of all, I'm not just talking about outrage here. I'm talking about criminal penalties. And the federal government has decided that only one of these perpetrators, the person who killed dolphins, is gonna face penalties. While the person who killed the babies will not. So it's not just about outrage, it's about crimes being done. And punishments for those crimes. But also in terms of outrage, yeah, I, I you know, I, I could help but note all the people tweeting about the dead dolphin. And of course, I didn't look into it. I, I didn't check. But I, I think you and I both know that a, a, a great number of the people who were outraged by the dead dolphin said nothing at all about the dead babies. Um, and so, yes, while it's possible to be outraged by both, the fact is that many Americans are not outraged by both, really. They're only outraged by one, and that's the dead dolphin. And even if you are outraged by both, your outrage about the dead children should should be overwhelmingly, um, you know, more severe than your outrage over the dead dolphin. Like they don't even belong in the same conversation at all. A dead dolphin—that's the kind of thing you hear about that, and you say, "Well, that's uh, you know, that's too bad. That's 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 really who stabs a dolphin." I hope they find the person who did. It. Like that's that's all you got to say about the dolphin. But what happened to these children should provoke within you a, a an intense fiery rage. Like at the bottom of your right down to the bottom of your soul, you should feel that rage. And if you don't, and instead you feel it over the dolphin, then there is something sick within you. There's you. There is something wrong with you. And you're not the only one, if that's any consolation. Because we live in a society that conditions people to value animal life over human life. Laws have consequences, and that's one of them. There are the practical consequences of laws, like it determines who goes to jail and who, who suffers penalties. But also, it, it, it has it has a consequences at a, at a deeper level. Where if you live in a, in a country... Where it's illegal to kill dolphins, and if you kill a dolphin, the federal government's gonna come after you, but it's not illegal to kill babies. For a lot of people, after a while, that's gonna condition them. They're gonna, because they live in this environment, they, they are, after a while, going to see the dolphin as more valuable than the baby. Um, and that's the, the fact of the matter. I mean, it, dolphins in America, have more legal rights than young babies. They have more legal rights. According to the law, they are worth more, according to the law, than babies. All right. We well, mentioned Elon Musk before. The uh, left is still in the midst of its, of its meltdown uh, over this. And here was an MSNBC segment with um, Al Sharpton who still somehow has a show on MSNBC that that I guess some people watch. I don't know how they could keep this show going if nobody watched it. But I can't imagine. Can you imagine sitting down for an hour and choosing to watch Al Sharpton? I can't. Some people do, though. And here's what they had to say about uh, Elon Musk. Tesla CEO Elon uh, uh, Musk, who has made a $43 billion offer for Twitter to, quote, build an arena for free speech. Musk has accused Twitter of censoring its users. Are you concerned that what Musk is trying to do is to open up the platform for more misinformation about topics such as COVID-19 and the 2020 election, and perhaps even allow former President Trump to get his account back?
2: I mean, I'm going to be honest. Elon Musk is a danger to Twitter and to freedom of speech. He has been known to say some of the most transphobic and homophobic things to his millions of followers. So creating an arena for hate, to me, that's what that sounds like, an opportunity for him to have no consequences, to have no flags, for people just to be able to do whatever it is and say whatever they want, with regardless of what kind of um, uh, harm that it causes. So I think that this is something that folks really need to be paying attention to, because I think that Elon Musk buying Twitter or creating this "quote unquote" arena would be problematic.
0: Did Al Sharpton just give uh, Elon Musk a gender transition? It sounded like he said it, Ilana Musk. Uh, I could be wrong, and that's maybe that—that's one way that Elon Musk could solve all this, this this problem for himself if he just rebranded himself to Ilana Musk, had a gender transition, came out as a woman. You know, he's he's trans now. He's he's already an African American immigrant that 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 apparently hasn't hasn't helped him much um, in the. Uh, in the court of public opinion, but if he was a tra- I mean if he was a trans African American immigrant, then he I, come on, he's got way too many victim points at that at that, at that point. You have to just let him take Twitter. Um, she says the, the guest there says that Elon Musk is a danger to Twitter and to free speech. Now on the first note, she's she's, she's right actually. It, it, he, he is a danger to Twitter as it is currently assembled. He is a danger to Twitter as it, is, as it currently functions. He's certainly a danger to the to Twitter's corrupt board. Um, he's a danger in that way, but that's, that's, that's a good thing. That's called being, He's a, another way of putting it, he's, a, he's an actual disruptor. And there are a lot of people who get credit for being disruptors who aren't, but in this case, that's actually what, what Elon Musk is. And she also says that he's a danger to free speech, and it's um, a little confusing to follow the logic here because she says he's a danger to free speech because he would turn Twitter into an arena where you could say whatever you want, um, no matter how much it hurts people's feelings. Well, hold on a second. He's a danger to free speech because he'll allow people to say whatever they want. That doesn't seem to make any sense at all, does it? And, and in fact, it doesn't. And the reason why it doesn't make any sense and it's totally incoherent and all of our conversations really about anything uh, descend so quickly into incoherence is that, you know, the framework for the conversation, we're, we're starting from a faulty premise. And in this case, the, the faulty premise is that everybody cares about free speech, which they don't. Maybe there would be some chance of us having you know, a debate, some kind of productive debate in this country, if everybody was just honest from the beginning about what they actually want and what they believe. So on the left, they don't care at all about free speech. So just say that, you know, uh, make your argument against free speech. I'm not going to agree with it, but that's your argument rather than arguing against free speech within the context of pretending that you're trying to defend free speech, well there's just no hope of anything happening there. No hope of us understanding each other. So for the MSNBC panelist there, her actual view is that free speech is bad and she doesn't think we should have it. We should not be able to just say whatever we want. And okay, start that's your starting point. Make your case. I'll listen to that at least, because this I can't listen to. I'm not going to listen to you pretend that um, you're trying to protect free speech by abolishing it. That doesn't make any sense. But if you could make some kind of at least coherent, uh, robust argument against free speech, I'll at least I'll listen to you. You're going to have a hard time convincing me, but I'll, I will listen. All right. Um, Chris Coons is a senator from Delaware, and he is uh, calling on the U.S. to get involved and stop Russia. And if that means a world war, then it sounds like he's perfectly willing to um, endure that, or at least have the rest of us endure because it's not going to affect him much. Let's listen to that.
2: In some public remarks this week, you said um, the country needs to talk about when it might be willing to send troops to Ukraine. You said if the answer is never, then we are inviting another level of escalation and brutality by Putin. Are you arguing that President Biden was wrong when he said he would not send troops to Ukraine? Are you asking him to set a red line?
1: Margaret, I think those of us in Congress who have a critical role in setting foreign policy uh, and in advising uh, the president in terms of his decisions as commander in chief uh, need to look clearly Uh, At the level of brutality, this is a moment of enormous challenge for all of us, Uh, and I deeply respect President Biden's leadership in pulling together the West, in imposing crushing sanctions uh, on Russia, and in bringing to this fight countries that had stayed on the sidelines before. I think President Biden's leadership has been steady and constructive, but this is a critical moment. If Vladimir Putin, who has shown us how brutal he can be, is allowed to just continue uh, to massacre civilians, to commit war crimes um, throughout Ukraine uh, without NATO, without the West uh, coming more forcefully to his aid, um, I, great, I I deeply worry that what's going to happen next is that we will see Ukraine turn into Syria. Mm-hmm. The American people cannot turn away from this tragedy in Ukraine. I think the history of the 21st century turns on how fiercely mm-hmm. we defend freedom in Ukraine and that Putin will only stop when we stop him.
0: Defend. Uh, yeah, we need to go to war to defend freedom in uh, in Ukraine. You notice how the argument has shifted quite a bit because in the uh, you know, early on, Early in, in Putin's invasion of Ukraine, we were told that, well, we might have to get involved, uh, we might have to get involved and stop it, because if we don't, there were all these comparisons to World War II, right, and Hitler, and uh, look what happened when the West didn't rise up to put a stop to, to, to Hitler's campaign of invasion early on. Um, and so that was that was the argument in the first few weeks. I mean, up until, like it seems like just 15 seconds ago, that's what they were telling us, is that if we don't we got to get involved potentially, because if we don't, then Putin's going to, he's going to keep going and he's going to continue his invasion. And pretty much, pretty, pretty soon he's going to occupy all of Europe. Like that's, that's where this is going to head. And they've, um they've stepped back from that because it's very clear with the way this is playing out, that that's not going to happen. Like the, the issue here is Ukraine. Um, It's not, Putin continuing on, and next thing you know, he's, uh, he's in France. Like, th- we know that, that they can't make that argument anymore. That was always absurd to begin with. It's even more absurd now. And so now it is, it is all about Ukraine itself. They're not pretending that going to war to, to protect Ukraine is somehow an act of self-defense on our part, right? Not pretending that anymore. Now it is, uh, well, we can't turn away from the atrocities in Ukraine. All these terrible things are happening. We have to fight for freedom. And I don't deny the terrible things are happening. And it is it is a, a terrible situation. I, I want the war to be, I wish it never started. I want it to be over as soon as possible. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, sending weapons over there and, and any other the resources we send, I'm not sure how that will bring about a situation where the war is going to end sooner. It seems like that's just going to pro- prolong it. So I want to see the war end because it's a terrible thing. But do we have to go to war to defend the freedom of Ukraine? Um, Americans, American families, should they, American parents, should they send their children overseas to die for the sake of the freedom of Ukraine? The answer to that is no. All right. Let's see. One other thing I wanted to mention, this is from Fox News. A Pennsylvania candidate for the U.S. House has been open about her past as a part-time stripper in college and her decision to get an abortion when she was 18. Well, she's running as a Democrat, so of course she's open about that. Those, that's just that's, that's a resume builder right there. A stripper, she had an abortion. Um, she uh, also has an OnlyFans now, of course. In a May 2021 video, she posted to Twitter, Hunt describes what led her to get an abortion a decade ago. She's now running to unseat incumbent Democratic Representative Dwight Evans in the primary election. She raised uh, nearly $328,000 in the first quarter of 2022. And uh, so maybe she'll be a formidable opponent. But here she is a couple of years ago explaining why she she, uh, had that abortion. There are a few reasons, including climate change, by the way. Let's listen.
2: When I was 18, I was part of the 2% of people who can get pregnant on birth control. And I found out I was pregnant. And I decided that I was not ready to bring a child into this world and I decided to get an abortion. Uh, that decision was made with a lot of love. I think that being pro-life is being pro-choice and that the, I, I, as a person, was not ready to bring a child into this world, but also the world was not in a state and is not 10 years later is not in a state that I wanted to bring a child into yet, which is my decision uh, to make. Uh, We have a lack of jobs. My generation faces a lack of jobs, a lack of living wage, uh, a housing crisis, an affordable housing crisis, a student debt crisis, the climate emergency, the prison industrial complex, uh, and the, the list. Goes on and on, and I I wanted to be
0: able to offer my child better. It's like what I just said about free speech. Like let, let's just just start with being honest with yourself and with us, rather than saying you got an abortion because you love your child. So your child deserves better than uh, what the world has to offer. So instead, you're just going to kill him, right? It's it's not like you can kill your child and then. Wait for the world to get better, which is never going to happen because we all, we live in a in a fallen world, and it, there's always going to be pain and suffering in the world. So, but you can't do that. Wait for the world to magically get better, and then have that same kid later, when the timing is right. No, that that child is dead forever, and so that of course doesn't make any sense. And rather than trying to position abortion this way, it's something I did it for the sake of the child. I killed my child for his own sake. It was a loving act. Just start from from a point of honesty and say I, I I don't I didn't care about this this person. This is all about me. Why should I have to make sacrifices for him? That's not a defensible position, but that's the honest position. Start there, at least. And she throws it all in there: uh, climate change, the prison industrial complex. You know, the great thing about that is that if you are um, a good mother, which I you know, I understand as a stripper and someone on OnlyFans, maybe that's a lot to ask. But if you're a good parent, then you don't really have to worry too much about the prison industrial complex for your, as far as your own kid is concerned. That's, what, that's what, because you're going to raise them so that they don't end up going to prison. And that's going to work like 95% of the time. If you're just a good parent, your kid's not going to end up in prison. Um, but it's all, it all is in the end is a, is a loving act kill a child because you love them. Absolutely perverse. Let's get now to the comment section.
2: Daily cancellations are the order of the
0: day. We're the sweet baby Tom D. says, I came here through Shapiro and Crowder. I'm a conservative, but I draw the line here. Mr. Walsh is too extreme for my liking. I, I totally agree. I'm a I'm a scary person. And very extreme. You should probably stay far, far away from me. Um, Let's see. Although those other two characters that you mentioned, they're they're pretty extreme right-wing lunatics as well. So I don't know. Um, Let's see. Your point that this proves we are run by oligarchs is spot on. When the Constitution can't protect our rights, yet some billionaire can, we are flat-out effed unless we act. And Jeff says, I cannot tell you how much I enjoy you calling Elon Musk an African-American immigrant. I think I enjoyed as much as you enjoy saying it. Well, I hope you enjoy me saying it because that, I, that joke is not going away for as long as Elon Musk is in the news. And I think he's going to be in the news for you know quite some time. Um, Courtney says, uh, daily cancellation. I agree. My husband took a lower paying job so he could be more present at home. Instead of working 68 hours a week, he works 40 to 50 and comes home early sometimes. Helps me with, with the, the kids and house, work is life. I think they mean work-fun balance, trying to teach our kids to do the hard work first, then the fun stuff. And that's an important distinction, too, because I talk about how work is life. Li- work is life, life is work. I mean, both of those things are true. That's not to say that your job is life or that your life is your job. Yes, your your life should be quite a bit bigger than your nine-to-five job, whatever that might be. But there are other forms of of work. Like, if you're a stay-at-home mom, you don't have a job, but you do work. And that's why there's this argument sometimes about, oh, does being a stay-at-home mom, does it count as a job? Is it a real job? Well, no, it's not a a job. You don't clock in. You don't get paid for it. It's not a job. It's work, though. See, a job is just one form of work. And the, the point about life is that no matter how you slice it, you work is required in order to sustain your existence. The only difference is that now in the modern Western society, you actually have the option to not do any of that work or not do most of it and kind of conscript someone else to do it for you. And in fact, in in older times, that option existed as well in, in a different form. Let's see, Michael says, Matt, Have you slash will you see Father Stew? How do you feel about faith-based films with profanity? The movie has an R rating for language. I personally feel there's never an excuse for profanity in a movie. Uh, I haven't seen the movie yet. I know what you're talking about. This is the Mark Wahlberg uh, movie with Mel Gibson. And uh, it's a a true story about a guy who I think is like an ex-con. And he comes out of this hard life and he he eventually becomes a priest. And um, I've heard it's getting panned by the critics. So you go to Rotten Tomatoes, it's one of those classic things where it's got like a 30% rotten score from the critics and then 98% of the audience likes it. So that for a movie like this, I would actually be, any movie that involves faith, Christianity, the church, if it's critically acclaimed, that makes me very nervous. Um, So the fact that critics hate it is a real good sign for me. And uh, Mark Wahlberg and Mel Gibson are both excellent. So I am interested. I'll probably watch it. I, I, I have also heard about the profanity. I've heard these complaints because it's, it's actually, it's it may appear to be a quote unquote faith-based film based on the, the, uh, the content and the subject matter and the, some of the people involved, but it's got a lot of harsh language. And so it actually has an R rating. How do I feel about that? I've, I've, I think that's a good thing actually. Because that's, that's real, that's reality. You're trying to tell a story about something real, something that actually happened. And you want people to be able to understand it and relate to it and get invested in the story. And so how could you possibly tell a story about a, an ex-con, a guy who lived, lived this hard life into drugs and whatever else, and there's never any profanity? Well, he gets mad at someone and you hear him say, oh, gosh, darn you big meanie head like the minute i hear that it takes me out of the story it's not real and so what you have to ask yourself is not whether there should be profanity in the movie it's whether this is a story worth telling and of course it's a story worth telling it's a story of redemption so yeah in fact you do need you you do need harsh language you do need uh, cussing in movies sometimes because it's real remember that was one of my big complaints about um, What's that? The football movie with Denzel Washington. Remember the Titans, okay, which is like a good movie. And um, it's got Denzel Washington. It's a football movie, but it's, it's PG. And so you've got all these scenes in a locker room with these high school kids and the football players and they're arguing, they're fighting and everything. And, uh, but it's only PG language that they use and it just makes it ridiculous and it takes you out of the story. So I think that's great. Uh, let's see, another one says, PK Starstorm says, uh, Matt, Matt echoing the Incredibles 2 villain monologue during the cancellation segment, LOL. Well, I've never seen the Incredibles 2. I don't plan on seeing it. But I do find that I very often agree somewhat with the villains in superhero movies. Like on the rare occasion when I watch a superhero movie and I, and I hear the villain and we get to his big speech at the end. Oftentimes I listen to it and I think, oh, he's got a point. Maybe that's why I can't get into the genre, because they're too hard on the, on the supervillains. I relate to them too much. I don't know what that says about me. You know, Americans used to turn to sports to get away from politics, but the left has now made that impossible, turning them into a stage for virtue signals and political actors. And NBA star Jonathan Isaac isn't having it. Isaac faced heavy criticism from the media for his views on social issues and vaccines over the past few years, and he still stood strong. Which is why I'm extremely excited to announce that he's decided to write a book with The Daily Wire called Why I Stand, Jonathan's book will be about the rise of his basketball career, his journey into faith, and his strength to stand alone in the face of immense pressure. The book is available for pre-order now at Amazon, so reserve your copy today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Over Easter weekend, a video went viral, which sparked perhaps a stronger reaction than you might expect. Um, that is, you might not have expected a strong reaction if you've been cryogenically frozen for the past half century and were just thawed out and introduced to the internet 30 seconds ago. But anybody with a bit more experience in cyberspace knows that literally anything sparks a strong reaction, especially anything involving politics, religion, or airplanes. If you combine the three, you've got a real powder keg on your hands. Not literally, we hope. That brings us to uh, this video, which shows uh, a group of people on a flight standing up and singing Christian worship music on the flight. One of them is standing in the aisle with an acoustic guitar. Um, We know that that man with the guitar is named Jack Jens Jr. He's a pastor and the founder of a Kingdom Realm Ministries, it's called. He and his crew were traveling across Europe and into Ukraine, apparently, over the past few weeks. We know all of this because the media has published some not-so-favorable stories about this incident, and Jens has actually been doxed on Twitter by the outrage mob. Some prominent people have joined the backlash, such as Ilhan Omar, who tweeted on Saturday, quote, I think my family and I should have a prayer session next time I'm on a plane. How do you think it will end? Yes, yeah, some people uh, play music on a plane, Ilhan wasn't even there, and yet she has found a way to make herself the victim of it. Ilhan is good at playing this game. It's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon, except except, uh, instead of connecting an actor to Kevin Bacon, she's able to connect any event in the world to her own personal victimhood narrative. It's almost impressive. But before we address Ilhan's claims in any more detail, let's first watch the controversial video in question. Now, let me just say up front that um, I can very much relate to the bald guy in the foreground staring helplessly into the camera. You can see him right there. Uh, some of the passengers seem to be relatively pleased with the performance, but I, I think I'd be reacting more like that guy right there. This would be, in many ways, like this situation for me, would be my personal help. I appreciate the message of the song but I I really personally, um, from an aesthetic standpoint, cannot stand acoustic youth pastor Christian music. The idea of being trapped in a metal tube 30,000 feet in the air with a guy strumming his guitar two feet from my eardrums is traumatizing to think about. If I was in, in an exit row, I might consider making a break for it. This is almost as bad as somebody eating an onion bagel in the seat right next to you, an experience that I've suffered through on more than one occasion. In those cases, with respect to the bagel chompers, I think it'd it'd be legally and morally justifiable for the air marshal to just escort the offender off of the plane in the middle of the flight. I would not advocate for the same penalty for the worship team in the video because at least their hearts are in the right place. But I do think that you should just give people a choice before subjecting them to contemporary Christian folk music. Consent is key. I mean, I'm Christian and I don't even like it. You can't just assume that everybody wants to hear that. I mean, what if somebody stood up in the aisle and started yodeling? What if a polka band played accordion music all the way over the Atlantic? What if, God forbid, Beyonce was on the flight and started singing acapella? I mean, where does it end? My problem is with the singing then, not with the message. But for Ilhan Omar and the others in the online outrage brigade, it's the opposite. And that's why none of these people complained when the cast of The Lion King sang The Circle of Life on a plane in Australia. Let's watch that again i My God, it's an epidemic. Imagine being in a stuck, being stuck in a plane with that. I, that's again my my nightmare. I'm on, a, I'm already on a plane, and then the plane turns into High School Musical. That's I cannot. I would, I, I just, I'd want to be dead. And yet, if I bring my kids on a plane, and they make a noise louder than a whisper, everyone in the surrounding rows will turn around and give us icy glares of death. Like God forbid your kid make any sound at all. And yet these people could turn the whole flight into a Broadway performance. That strikes me as a double standard. Meanwhile, Ilhan Omar is looking for a different double standard. She says that she and her family, you know, if they prayed on a plane, people would get upset. Well, first of all, given that Omar married her brother, prayer is certainly not the most upsetting thing that Omar does with her family. Second... I don't need to speculate about what would happen if Muslims prayed on a plane. I was just recently on an 18-hour Qatar Airways flight to and from Africa. Muslim prayer is so common on those flights that they actually put the coordinates to Mecca up on the seat back screens to help facilitate it. On many flights around the Muslim world, they'll actually play an Islamic uh, prayer over the, the intercom before takeoff. Muslims are not shy about expressing their faith loudly and publicly. Many mosques, including in the United States, will play the uh, Islamic call to prayer over loudspeakers throughout the day so that the whole town can hear it. And what if any white person were to complain about any of that? What if I had whined about the Muslim prayer on my Qatar flight? What what, what if someone who who lived near a mosque said that they didn't want to hear the Muslim call to prayer? How would Ilhan Omar respond to that? Well, we all know she'd rush to the scene and start vomiting words like bigotry and Islamophobia all over the place. She's searching for a double standard, but all she needs to do is look in a mirror. She's the one with the double standard, as usual. Now, you might point out that the Muslim prayer on flights generally happens in and around heavily Muslim areas of the world. Fair enough. But the West is heavily Christian. Not as much as it used to be, not as much as it should be, but still predominantly Christian, according to any survey I've ever seen on the subject. So it's the same old story here. Ilhan Omar does not believe that anything in the West should reflect the West's dominant historical culture and religion. The Middle East is allowed to wear its Muslim culture with pride, but the West cannot do the same with its historical Christian culture, according to Omar. Ilhan Omar was born in Somalia, which is one of the worst places on earth. It is an absolute hellhole. It's a wasteland, a failed state. Her family fled that place, sought refuge here, and they were welcomed with open arms. And yet she despises her adopted home. The Christian West took her in, elected her to Congress, Made her one of the most influential people in the country, and still she has no gratitude. She has no love for the place that saved her life, or for the place uh, or, or for the people who inhabit that place. She came into this culture, our culture, and immediately decided that the culture must change. Not just change, but be entirely dismantled and rebuilt to reflect her own ideology and priorities. And if you think that the last statement there is reading a little bit too much into her complaining about people singing Christian songs on a flight, you'd be right. But I'm not reading that into her reaction to the flight video. I'm actually just quoting her directly. Let's listen to that.
2: As long as our economy and political systems prioritize profit without considering who is profiting, who is being shut out, we will perpetuate this inequality. So we cannot stop at criminal justice system. We must begin the work of dismantling the whole system of oppression
0: Wherever we find it. Dismantle the whole system. Gets here from Somalia and wants to dismantle it all. And you know, she's coming from a, a country that is entirely dismantled, where all the systems are dismantled. So you'd think she would have had her fill of that by now. So the reason why her complaints about the Christians on the flight rub some of us the wrong way is that it's consistent with a long established theme. And that theme is Omar's lack of gratitude. And that, in fact, is a much broader theme that encompasses more than just Ilhan Omar. We don't inculcate or encourage gratitude in any of the people who, ex- who we accept into our country or any of the people born here naturally. That's the underlying issue. It goes a lot deeper than what she said about people singing on a plane. And it's for this deeper underlying reason that Ilhan Omar is today, probably not for the first time and certainly not for the last, canceled. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed Production manager, Pavel Vodovsky. Our associate producer is McKenna Waters. The show is edited by Robbie Dantzler. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. And hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Twitter triggers a poison pill to stop Elon Musk's hostile takeover. President Trump endorses J.D. Vance in Ohio. And White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki refers to a reporter as a stupid SOB. What a threat on the media and journalism. We will cover all of it on The Michael Knowles Show.